So we have two more full days left of the retreat. And uh, you know, if you feel some stirrings of uh, thinking, oh, the retreat is already almost over, that's one way of thinking about it. But we could also think there's two more full days. And as Ayanana Bodhi said yesterday, we never know when uh, insight comes through, you know, when causes and conditions are coming together and then just inside is the result of it and we never know when that's going to happen. And so to make the most of those two last four days in order to, you know, cultivate the mind and put in the causes and conditions and then, you know, the rest is up to the Dhamma. And uh, I want today also start with another of the poems from this book. And it's Sakula Bikuni speaking, and the word Sakula is here translated as from a good home. I once gave all of myself to being the perfect wife and mother. Then I heard the teachings of the Buddha. I saw the arising and passing away of what was wife and said goodbye to my husband. I saw the arising and passing away of what was mother and said goodbye to my children. What was left I gave to the path. Oh, my sisters, you never have to be perfect. If there is something in these teachings calling out to you, it's because something in you is calling out to these teachings. The path will take you whenever you are ready, just as you are. You know, and I really like that passage. If there is something in these teachings calling out to you, it's because something in you is calling out to these teachings. And I think that's, you know, the experience of uh, faith uh, and confidence. And I can still vividly remember, you know, when I had that uh, 1988, which is a long time ago, 32 years ago, so a bit less than that, in April 1988, when I met my first teacher, Achim Buddha who was a very, you know, old uh, forest monk in the south of Thailand, and I wasn't really knowing, you know, in what kind of a place I had stumbled into. And then when I saw him, I had that immediate experience, you know. Even I was rather, you know, mystified by what was happening because I had such a strong sense of, you know, possibility when I saw him and a strong sense of inspiration, you know, kind of welling up. You know, and I never had frequented places where there were monks before, so it was kind of quite unexpected why there was such a strong kind of resonance. And then, uh, you know, what I did uh, intuit at that moment was, you know, that I could also, you know, walk this path and 
and he was a very radical monk for his time and uh, you know it was just the right kind of you know symbol for wisdom which he provided you know by the way he was and by the way he had set up his monastery there in the jungle of the south of Thailand it was all very um, coming together just at the right time at the I was at the right time at the right place and it all just happened quote unquote by itself mm-hmm. I had never planned to go to this place I had never planned to stay there you know longer and and that moment you know where there was that recognition uh, has changed my whole life in a big way as you can see <laughs> and and it was you know the the kind of intuitive recognition of uh, of something of great value and then I had enough a kind of uh, courage, I'd say, and enough common sense, you know, to really follow it, to have that faith, you know, to step into that opening, even it was going against everything, what I was doing at that point, you know, where I've not even been, uh, the five precepts were rather not a theme, you know, in my life before I met this teacher. And then his kind of presence communicated, you know, without any words. He communicated a lot, you know. I think he communicated the importance of, of sila as a foundation for practice. And he also communicated, uh, you know, wisdom, what that is. And, you know, now I have been, you know, chewing over this for all, over 30 years, 32 years or so. and. Uh, you know, what is the end result of it so far is, you know, that I have really, um, you know, in the beginning it was like, oh, I have to read all of these books and I have to hear all of these teachings. And, and now after 32 years, you know, it, it, it simply, it becomes ever more simple, really. And uh, a lot of the need, you know, for complexity, and complication has been let go of, you know, by, uh, by just, you know, working at it, staying with the practice and really experiencing that, uh, you know, the simplicity of that one uh, quote, which I have mentioned, I think on the first day from the Dhammapada, better to live for one day, experiencing the arising and passing away of phenomena than to live for a hundred years without having that understanding. And that's really, you know, the essence of the practice, you know, and everything what we are doing, including, you know, the movement and the precepts and, you know, skillful uh, ways of living and the way how we eat and all of that together, you know, it prepares the mind so that the mind can see that arising and passing away in a real immediate, complete way. And, you know, and that, the seeing that arising and passing away is um, translating into disenchantment, you know, and dispassion in the mind. Which means, you know, if we see the arising and passing away countless times, it washes away craving in the mind 
just like if you put a piece of dirty clothes into the washing machine, you know, if you just, you don't need to do much, you just let it do its thing, or soak it in water, and the same, you know, like, if, as if you would soak a dirty piece of cloth in water, you can soak the mind in the experience of arising and passing away, you know, in a constant, in, a, in an ongoing way, in all postures, not only when you're sitting on the cushion. And then that, you know, fading away of attachment gives us the capacity to pay more attention to the endings of things. Because usually, you know, we don't pay attention to endings. We are mostly interested in beginnings. You know, that's why we, for the meta meditation, I was suggesting and thinking about a puppy or a kitten or a baby. You know, because that has this kind of effect on the mind. Much more than if I say, you know, reflect on a corpse or something like that. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, wow. <laughs> so... You know, that's a very good example, you know, how true that actually is for us, you know. And we need to take advantage of that knowledge, you know, because it, it gives us an inroad, you know, into the practice where we can, you know, use the laws of nature to support us to go in the right direction rather than, you know, going into more and more collapse. We have to kind of lift up, make some space, and then through having that space around the experience, insight can happen. And yeah, so to get in, you know, get interested in the whole spectrum, not only in the babies and in the puppies, but also in the corpses, you know, and in the rotten apples and in all of that stuff. You know, we usually don't want to know about this. Because there's somehow that misunderstanding there's something wrong with that because it's not giving us pleasant feeling. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done, but it's not impossible, you know. It doesn't actually require much more than just being aware, you know, of the aversion we have against those perceptions and then just working with those and then allowing, you know, those different perceptions, you know, to also have a place in our mind and in our heart and in our lives. I think Anna Bodhi was mentioning, uh, Ajahn Sumedha always speaking about the orphans of consciousness, you know, those things we don't want to know about because it looks like a downer, you know. But it's only, you know, for the ignorant mind. It is experienced like that. But for a mind, you know, which is in touch, you know, with the way things are, that kind of, you know, deflation which we can feel when we consider those things doesn't happen. Because there is that equanimity through really knowing the way things are. And you know, and in the practice, this is what we are making possible, that we befriend everything, the beginnings and the endings. And then if the mind can really see the whole spectrum, it is much more willing to let go because it sees the futility of attaching, you know. And then at the same time, you know, we, we can have 
still a lot of joy and delight in beauty and in babies and in everything, you know. But there, it's, it's in a different way, it's not in a mindless way, but it's in a, in a way which is uh, balanced. And, uh, you know, through stepping out of those different layers of delusion, we are, you know, stepping in a, in a greater sensitivity, a greater vulnerability, really, and that enables us to adapt to the way things are. So that's why it's painful, you know, that work. And that's why people usually are not, are not very keen on doing it. If they haven't been struck, you know, by some kind of experience which arouses enough conviction and faith that this is really the right way to do. Otherwise, it looks rather, you know, counterintuitive somehow. And, you know, this sensitivity which we all have, you know, because if you look at our bodies, they are extremely vulnerable phenomena, old age, sickness and death. And, uh, you know, we can use that vulnerability for, you know, developing a greater capacity to really be in touch with the way things are. You know, if you compare the bodies we have with the, with the body of a turtle, for example, or an, an alligator, you know, they have a very, very thick skin or even shell, and they live in a very small world because of that. And, you know, and the more we are willing, you know, to take off layers and layers of defense and so-called protection, you know, we live in, in an ever, you know, expanding world, in an ever-expanding mind. And then we can use, you know, the vulnerability and the pain and all of those emotions, you know, which are difficult to bear actually as a vehicle for um, greater sensitivity and because of that sensitivity we have more capacity you know to really experience the arising and ceasing in very subtle ways as well you know and then that enables us to see the ending to see the whole of it not just that what we want to see but everything and then over time it becomes clear you know there is no real ending Every ending is a new beginning. And then energy comes again, you know, but we're never gonna come to that point if we don't wanna go through the breaking down, you know, of delusions, the breaking down of dreams we all have, you know. So this word disenchantment, it's the Pali word nibida. You know, it's like waking up from a dream. And in the beginning, it's, oh, we are losing something. But actually, we are gaining a lot of freedom. And so is that the whole practice is, is not about gaining something, but it's about putting down and letting go. You know, one layer of ignorance, one layer of conditioning after the next. And in the teachings that is described as the ten fetters, you know, which keep us bound to the wheel of becoming the samyojana, 
And in the practice, you know, what we are doing is basically, you know, loosening those ten fetters and, you know, with the stages of insight, they are permanently let go of. So with the stream entry or the first level of insight, of permanent or enlightenment rather, the first three fetters are let go of. And, you know, the first one is doubt, doubt in the possibility you know, of liberation, doubt in the, in the path and the teachings. The second one is um, belief in rites and rituals, you know, believing that if we are performing certain actions, you know, if you are bowing and praying and chanting, that this alone, you know, will liberate us because we pray to the Buddha and ask him, you know, to do it for us. So that does not work. But it can be an inroad, you know, until we are mature enough to let that one go. And then the third one is a personality belief, you know, which means believing that this body and mind is a, a separate entity. And then letting go of that and seeing the process nature, you know, which is body is in constant exchange with the environment, which is, you know, rather easy to see when you eat and when you go to the bathroom. That's a very good example. There's a constant, constant communication happening. So that's the first three fetters which are permanently let go of through stream entry. And then the next level is... Um, once returner, you know, which means, you know, coming back to this world one more time. That's all a, you know, sim symbolic way of speaking, meaning it's not long. And, in, uh, you know, uh, somebody on the path on that stage would have not only let go of the first three fetters, but the next three fetters, which is sensuous desire and ill will, they have been considerably lightened. And then the next level is non-returner, you know, even closer to enlightenment. That being, you know, has let go of all the first five fetters. And then there's five left, and those five are graving to fine material and immaterial states of mind, to the jhanas, graving to the different levels of jhanas, because it's a very pleasant experience. And then conceit, which is, you know, the conceit is the kind of a lighter version of personality belief. You know, thinking I'm better than this person, I'm worse than this person, or I'm the same. To just compare oneself, you know, with others. And then restlessness and ignorance. So that's the five higher fetters. And an arahant or fully enlightened being has let go of all ten. They are permanently cut and then there's no more becoming. So there's no more being born into anything. You know, the, uh, an arahant you know, can perfectly stand under or stand by her or his experience without getting sucked up into it. They still experience pain. They still need to eat and need to go to the toilet and drink and speak and drive cars but they are always perfectly aware of what they are doing, not becoming hijacked into it. 
because those 10 fetters have been cut through by simply, you know, being totally in touch with the arising and passing away. And then the mind, at one point, you know, if there is enough causes and conditions brought in, into place, the mind just lets go because it knows it's futile to attach to that which is impermanent. It can only bring suffering. So I just shared it with you again today because it sounds so kind of simple and we all know it. We, and we all have read it and heard it a million times, but it's about you know, removing the distraction and to really take that in really, really, really deeply. That's what we are trying to do and uh, that's the essence of the practice. So not to be fooled by the simplicity of that statement. It is really true and it's mentioned in the scriptures over and over and over again. And we have to start, you know, where we are and that's here right now. And then, then depending, you know, on how causes and conditions are in the moment, we use, you know, the Brahma Viharas maybe to soften you know, the heart and the mind, or if the heart and mind is already in a collected state, you know, we can just turn the mind towards the arising and ceasing. And that's, you know, the essence of the practice and all the other you know, things which we can do and which we are doing, they are all in the service of that. <coughs> if there's something in these teachings calling out to you, it's because something in you is calling out to these teachings. The path will take you whenever you are ready, just as you are. So you just have to make yourself available and the rest will take care of itself. So we can sit for another 15 minutes. <clears throat> 